this is a momentous occasion. This is the last time we're officially going to do anything podcast related for the rest of the year. That's it. And Not until next a, year. And we're a month short. What yeah. the heck? What the heck? WTF. Yeah, no. <laughs> now, hey, this is this is going to be uh, this one we got coming up with Dan Murphy, and we'll talk about it in a minute. This will be our last official podcast for this year, like we've been warning you guys. We're going to take December off. We've got some things to work on. I've got a big project with the Department of Justice. We've got the grant for finishing the book, uh, and it's kind of a, a time for us to kind of sit back and look at a lot of the feedback you guys gave us about the direction of the show, what we want to do. We've gotten some good ideas, so we're going to retool things for January, but uh, rest assured, I think what we're going to do is people still like our separated intro, outro, you know, where it's just me and you, Murph. Um, we do small town police bother. They like that. I think people still want the in-depth stories. Um, I think one of the things will change is we will uh, release episodes back to back, day to day, like on Monday, yeah. if it's two part, then do it on Tuesday. Yeah. So we're going to make some changes like that. Uh, but in the meantime, we just want you guys to enjoy the gift that is uh, Game of Crimes. Yeah. And it's, you know, one, we want you to know that we do listen to what you say. Uh, which is why we're going with the Monday, Tuesday releases uh, of everybody that responded. And we got a, a huge response on the short form versus the long, long form. There was only one response I saw that was in favor of the short form. Every single other person wanted the long form. They liked the detail. And like a lot of people said, nobody else is doing what we're doing here on Game of Crime. So you have spoken. We are listening we're going to take December off just because I'm old and tired and, and Morgan just, you know, <laughs> he's dying to the crud again, I think. He went to Mexico and they tried to kill him. So uh, we got to get him better so you don't have to listen to him hack all the time. Um, I go on mute when I hack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike some of our people. <laughs> but that's what makes it fun. So we're still going to uh, go with the fun things that we do here. Still open to suggestions for you guys. So uh, keep the comments coming. We love it. We love it. Our fan page Best people in the world on Facebook, go to Game of Crimes fans, answer a few questions. If I can answer the questions, you can, you answer, can the questions. answer the questions. Trust That's me. right. <laughs> well, hey, well, let's kick this thing off. And so we have pontificated long enough. So uh, just real quick, just some quick housekeeping. Head on over to Apple and Spotify. Do those five stars. It helps us out a lot. And especially during this break, if you guys could just leave some ratings, let people know what you think. Um, for us to, to maintain this pace of things and to keep the long form, we've got to get some extra feedback. We've got to get more people listening to it. So anything you can do to help out, guys, we really, really appreciate it. So also head on over to our website. GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where we put pictures of some of our guests, like we got coming up with Dan Murphy. Books. It's unbelievable the number of books we have on there. <laughs> it's like um, a freaking library. <laughs> we got a library. Yeah. And so go over there and support those folks. Our merch uh, is there as well. Follow us on this thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Facebook, and the Instagram. But Murph, this Christmas season, to give the gift that keeps on giving, I just ask you three times where do you got to be? I didn't hear it three times. Uh, where do you got to be? And what about a third time? Where do you got to be? <laughs> now we got Beetlejuice. Hey, everybody, come and join us on Patreon. Give us a shot. See what you think about what we have over there. We spend a lot of time researching, uh, a lot of time recording and editing uh, just to bring you extra content. So come over and check out, like, we have our case of the month. We have the 911, what's your emergency, which... I'll say I'll that again, Murph. One. What was that again? <laughs> 199, what's your emergency? <laughs> you almost messed that up, that 911. What was that one yet? Uh, I don't know. You say it too many times, and all of a sudden it becomes memory, <laughs> right? 
Um, we're doing a monthly live stream. We have a case of the month. It's uh, the one I really like is you can't make this shit up. <laughs> and we do a Q&A where you can ask us anything. We haven't turned down a single question from any of our listeners yet. So come over, check us out. What we need is for our regular listeners, if you can help promote this with your friends and your acquaintances, and hell, I don't care if you know them or not, get them over on Patreon, give us a shot, see what you think. I think you'll be entertained, and that's what this is all about, bringing you some good information. You will get stuff on Patreon you will not get on our free podcast channel side here. So, yeah, head on over to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Here's how to order, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. <laughs> if we had a 1-800 number, I could say call 1-800-GAME-OF-CRIMES. There you go. Um, yeah, don't but call just, that number. We don't have that number. We, we don't know where it goes to. Uh, somebody does call and let us know. Anyway, so guys, just on go over there, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Now, before we get started, this is a show uh, about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but what's the rule, Murph? What's the law? What does the U.S. statute, United States Code 18-22.461 you know, say? 6969. It says, and if you haven't figured it out yet, <laughs> we never take ourselves serious. This is we're going to have a lot of fun on the show, but we also want to introduce you to people that you'd never meet otherwise. You you will not meet others. And like Merced, head on over to Game of Crimes fans. Uh, Sandy Salvato, our favorite mafia queen, runs that. Answer a couple questions, get in the ballpark. You will be entered, and when you are entered, you get to enjoy things like guess what time it is, Murph? What time is it? It's time for. Small town police blotter. And guess what? This week, all three stories come from our players on the Game of Crimes fan page and off one off of Patreon. So all these stories come from you. The first one comes from one of our buddies, Stephen, not Seagal, Siegel. That's Stephen, you know, Stephen Seagal. But this is Stephen, not Seagal, Siegel. Steve, I don't know if you know this. What's our number one rule on here? Don't do math. Police in Arizona made one of the strangest public service announcement in law enforcement history this week. The Peyton Police Department, population 15,297, salute, would like to take this opportunity to encourage the public not to use methamphetamine or you too may find yourself illegally purchasing a wild owl for $100 in the middle of the night from strangers <laughs> at a local gas station. This is true. They, they said this on a Facebook post. What? <laughs> Duh. So, officers conducting a traffic stop early Wednesday found a young owl next to the driver. The man apparently had done exactly what the above PSA says not to do when offered a wild bird. Police ended up booking the driver on multiple counts, including aggravated DUI, possession of methamphetamine, possession, transport, purchase of wildlife. The owl had minor injuries, was turned over to the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Uh, While the announcement was good for life, it had a serious point. It's illegal to possess, transport, buy, or sell wildlife unless expressly permitted by these statutes. And look, anytime you're on meth, nothing good happens. I don't know what shit, what else shit, but buying a wild owl for a hundred bucks in the middle of the night. Way to go, bud. Did you say aggravated DUI? Aggravated DUI. He must have made the cops mad. Dang, I've never heard of that one. <laughs> must be like his third time or driving stupidly. I don't know. Yeah, it's aggravated DUI. I guess that's where you piss the cops off. That's like true. That aggravated. Well, well, here's something that might aggravate you. Um, Especially, I don't know if this would aggravate you or not, but uh, this occurred in Springfield, Missouri. Murph. Right. Now, this dude wanted to prove a point to his lover during an argument, so he robbed a Bank of America. Now, you might ask, why is that newsworthy? Well, 
Michael Lloyd entered the Springfield Bank wearing a gray cutoff T-shirt, blue gym shorts, and one orange shoe at 11.30 a.m. local Wednesday time. You can already see this is going downhill. <laughs> he went up to the teller with a piece of printer-like paper that said, give me your money now. Don't say anything. I have a partner outside. It was written in pink ink. Now, what does pink ink have to do with this? Um, thanks for asking. I'm about to tell you. The teller, feeling scared, the teller, feeling scared and threatened, gave Lloyd the money before he left the bank in a black Dodge Ram pickup truck. He was interviewed by authorities that afternoon after somebody called saying, hey, I know who the dude is. Anyway, here's what happened. During an interview, authorities say Loy admitted to robbing the Bank of America to prove a point. He said he had no idea which bank he robbed, but he decided on the Bank of America after driving by. While in the parking lot, he used a highlighter, Steve, he used a highlighter to write his demand on the back of his birth certificate. <laughs> and he was given $754, which he was, as he was driving away, he threw his ID card and birth certificate out the driver's window. As he was driving to his roommate's home, he saw police cars, and guess what? He started throwing money out the window as well. Well, you talk about low-hanging fruit. Well, now, here's the best part about this. Um, he, he, well, not, he, you know, he texted his roommate saying, hey, just report the truck stolen and that he changed clothes when he got home. But here's what he told investigators. He told investigators he robbed the bank by himself without input or help from others. No shit, Sherlock. Nobody in their fucking right mind would say, hey, write a, write a, write, you know, write your holdup note on the back of your fucking birth certificate. He couldn't even get a full pair of shoes on. He could only find only one, one shoe. shoe. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Maybe. he said he expected to receive prison time and would take full responsibility for whatever punishment he was going to receive. It's five years for the bank robbery, 10 years for being stupid. I was going to say, they got a special section within the prison for this really stupid people. Yes, they do. He and may run for president over there. And uh, speaking of stupid, um, this one comes from Greg Wilson. And I think I told everybody, did I tell everybody who the other one came from? Oh, I didn't. It was from Angela Rush. So the uh, the the stupid bank robber story came from Angela Rush. That's a good one. That's a good one. And this next one comes to us from Greg Wilson. So, Stephen, I think you even remarked on this. They cracked the case of the Boston butt bandit. He yeah. was apprehended Friday, November 4th, by the Eccles County Sheriff's Office following a brief investigation into a theft that occurred overnight at the Eccles County High School. The Eccles County, the Eccles County FFA, which is the Future Farmers of America, us little rednecks know what FFA is, we was do. conducting a Boston butt fundraiser behind the ag shop during the early mornings of November 4th. At approximately 3 a.m., Joshua Boles, yeah, Boles, the 35 of Statonville, trespassed on the school property on his bicycle and was caught stealing a Boston butt from the smoker. <laughs> it's had to, I'll tell you what though, I, I, I get him. It, it had to smell good. School oh, officials notified them. He was immediately arrested by sheriff's office personnel. A search warrant is arrested as well as two arrest warrants were issued for him and his residence. They executed the search warrant Friday morning. And Steve, guess what? Not only to discover the rest of the Boston butt, I'm going to give you one guess at to what other drug they discovered i bet it was meth methamphetamine lying in plain view of deputies <laughs> conducting the search i <laughs> know you got the munchies for boston butt uh, but you notice my joke at the beginning they cracked the case boston butt crack, oh, butt, crack. Yeah. get that okay anyway it's as, very sophisticated humor yes he admitted to stealing the boston butt and stated it was so good he didn't even need barbecue <laughs> sauce that's how good it was 
He said he, could, he knew where to find it because he could smell them being cooked from outside his residence and followed the smoke smell. He was taken into custody and charged with felony possession of meth, misdemeanor theft by taking, and misdemeanor criminal trespass. And forevermore known as the Butt the Bandit. Boston Butt Bandit. The Butt Bandit. <laughs> You just earned a great nickname there, brother. Oh, man. You know what? And you know that did smell good. I mean, that had to be – you can't beat barbecue. Uh, smoking all night long. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. All right, so uh, we have uh, – so thus into the reading for today, P.A.S. Udamine Donais Requiem. All right, so uh, now, Murph. This is the fun part because we have Murph and Murphy coming up. So we need to tell everybody, first of all, you, this is another one that you found while you were out and about down at the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Right. Um, uh, which was held where this year? Was that the one in Dallas? Dallas. Dallas, Dallas Texas. Texas. So how did you run into this guy, and uh, why did we decide to invite him on? You know, we we have followed each other on LinkedIn for a while, uh, which is not unusual because uh, it's funny because people call me and say, hey, I'm trying to do something with my job. Can you call so-and-so? You guys are linked on LinkedIn. We have almost 30,000 followers on LinkedIn. I don't know most of them. Um, and, and Dan, I knew about him, but I didn't know him personally, but, uh, at ICP this year, somebody brought him by and introduced me to him and we got to talking. And I tell you, if you remember, we had Tommy Joyce and, um, uh, what was his partner's name? Mike Prate on here. And the NYPD guys always have the best stories. I'm not kidding. They're hilarious. And so after I talked to Dan for a while, and of course, with a name like Murphy, he's going to get prior, you know, priority preference with us. Uh, and I might introduce him as my brother or my long lost cousin or whatever he is, but he's a brother law enforcement. That's for sure. And he started telling me stories and I started cracking up and he, now you got to understand Dan came up when times were a little different. Okay. He's not, he's not an old guy, but, uh, they were still having to physically handle issues in New York city. So you may hear some stories today that you don't hear on some of our stories, but, uh, I mean, what he went through to get there and the decisions he made and what he's doing now. It's fantastic. I mean, it's you're gonna you just got to stick around until the end because you got to hear about his captain said, "Hey, go fuck yourself." Yeah, <laughs> it'll all make sense at the end. <laughs> you know, and, and, and this one is even so funny. We even discussed afterwards about having an episode where we talk about pranks that cops pull on cops. Yeah, you know, we're thinking about doing a live stream that, you know, uh, you know, obviously, you know, an event we charge for, but we thought, hey, we would bring together some of the best funniest people the funniest stories the best the best stories the best practical jokes uh the best things that have happened because i tell you we were laughing so hard at the end it was like and the way i was feeling it's like i can't do this anymore i'm gonna hock up a lung here you know <laughs> you gotta love these guys they do and when you go to new york when when they find out that you're in the law enforcement brotherhood they treat you like one of their own it's just it, new york is just a different place love it to death I, I never thought i'd say that but i do i mean you when you befriend those guys you have a friend for life yeah you got a, i think that was a randy newman song you have a friend for life but anyway before we can find out Anything about Dan O'Murphy? Uh, actually, we we talked about whether or not he's related to Carlos O'Kelly. You, you'll hear him claim to be uh, Puerto Rican uh, during this episode. Um, he does speak so, Spanish. <laughs> he does. He, he he had to. He learned, and kudos to him. He had to learn it. So, but Murph, before we find out about it, I have to ask you: Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and NYPD friendly game of all, the game of crimes? Absolutely, everyone. Let's get in. Sit down. Shut up. Hold on. You might want to have a tissue stand by because you're going to laugh. So much today. You might have tears coming down, but bring on brother Dan Murphy. Hey, everybody. 
Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Um, you know, we're kind of like some mixing things up. So we're back to doing our standard intro outro. So that, as you know, came first. Now what we're going to do is bring our guest of dishonor. Uh, I don't mean I miss our guest of honor in. Uh, I say dishonor because, uh, look, well, you guys thought you had enough of our NYPD buddies. No, 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 no. We got some more NYPD stuff. Tales of the NYPD. Remember when we had those guys on? Um, Tommy and Mike. So now we've got, now we've got another guy and he's got some stories. He sent us 35 pages of stories <laughs> and we, <laughs> you didn't tell me this was going to be a test, dude. I felt like I was doing a major case review again. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Let me, anyway, this is my brother, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> this is we got, Murph. You can introduce him or what? Yeah, we retired NYPD Sergeant Detective Daniel Murphy. So if you hear us talking to Murph today, you have to figure out which one of us is talking. Our accents might just give it away to give you a clue here. So this is what this is a thing of North meeting South today. <laughs> well, so Dan, hey, welcome, welcome uh, again. We and the other thing too is I'm glad we got you on too because uh, we we're just talking. Even though NYPD is a big department, it's kind of a small department. You were mentioning that, um, and even though you didn't know Tommy on the job, you guys connected later, like over LinkedIn, like you say. So it's always like, again, at the end of the day, it's a small world. So, mm -hmm. yes, um, it is. Hey, tell us, you were telling us about that. So tell us how does, well, we're going to get into this thing of ours here in a minute, but, but tell us in terms of how do you get to know people in NYPD? Cause you talked about, Hey, when you work the streets, you know, a lot of patrol officers, but then you work up from there. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. First of all, great to meet you, Morgan and, and Steve Murph. Always great to see you again. Thank you for inviting me on this. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be part of your podcast. I've listened to almost all of them at this point. They're, they're wonderful. And um, I'm just honored to be here. So with yeah, that, there's medication for that. Yeah. You get a life here, brother. <laughs> that was my shameless okay, plug for you guys. That, that, the niceties are over. Now let's dig in. That's it. That's it. You know, in the NYPD, you, you basically start out, you know, you, like any place else, you do your five or six months in the academy, you come out and you go to a training unit and you're immersed in the world of patrol and you you meet all the people in patrol that you work with. And, you know, and that's the majority of the job is basically the patrol services bureau. And that's who you meet. And um, I was fortunate enough in my career to move up into investigative uh, capacities fairly early. I didn't even have four years on the job yet. And I was in the Manhattan Warren Squad. And uh, it was a great opportunity to, to work all over the city, whereas in my rookie time, I had worked in Brooklyn North, which at the time was extraordinarily busy. Then I went up to Manhattan North, uh, West Harlem, the 30th Precinct, which later on had its own scandal, um, another very busy house, and then on to um, uh, Manhattan North Task Force. Again, all uniform riding around Manhattan North and a little bit of Brooklyn North. But when I went to the Manhattan Warren Squad, I got to learn Manhattan South and everything south of 59th Street, Times Square, all those areas. I got to learn a little bit about the Bronx, a little bit about Brooklyn South, a little bit about Queens, despite the fact that I grew up mostly in Western Queens. Eastern Queens was, was a whole another animal to me. Um, and so I, I found myself with my little map you know, back before the days of uh, <laughs> looking like figure, a tourist, right? Yeah. Hey, I, how do I get here? <laughs> I have to find a guy on Sheffield Street in East New York, Brooklyn. How do you get there? I've never been there before. It's it's a big city. So you, you learn your way around and you get to meet people all over the city. And that was kind of fun. Um, and then from there, I, I moved my way up to, uh, to narcotics. I went in 1989 to what was called the Brooklyn North Tactical Narcotics Team. It was... Um, a part of what they call the Organized Crime Control Bureau, and it's a, it's a detective career path. And it was at a time, uh, 89, 90, 91, when New York City, we had about 2,400 murders a year. 
Uh, we were the homicide leader of the country by far, and we just certain areas of the city were just war zones. And and I was working in Brooklyn North at the time, which probably was the most homicide-ridden stretch of territory in America. So we would go out on buy and bust operations, and on the cover beyond the street, we'd hear shots fired, and it'd be a homicide. You know, three o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. This kind of stuff happened was happening all over the city, but it was because of that uh, you get to meet people from all over the city. Um, and then as I further went in my career, went to the detective bureau, worked in organized crime, uh, working with the DEA was was a whole new world to me. You know, I mean, uh, I had gone in, in the course of what was it? In 10 years, I had gone from uh, swinging a nightstick in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is now trendy, but at the time was um, a heroin-infested dump, I like to call it. If you've ever seen the movie Serpico, Serpico was shot on a building on Driggs Avenue in Williamsburg, and I was a rookie. I made my first arrest in that same building. Only by the time that happened, that building was abandoned. Um, it was just, you, you couldn't walk on the street. You were stepping on empty class scenes from heroin and, and needles and junkies were wandering around. When was that, when was that movie made? I know it was based, Serpico was back from what, the sixties, right? Yeah. I think it was made 72, 73, something like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, please. Yeah. So let's rewind a little bit before we get too mm-hmm. far ahead. Um, yep. let's talk about this thing of ours. You know, when did you first come on and what made you do it? I mean, did you lose a bet? You were drunk one night, ended up in your underwear in front of a precinct with raising your right hand going, I do. I mean, how this happened? You say you know, that like it's a bad thing, Morgan. Come on, man. Yeah, really. Well, I had never really considered it, uh, despite the fact that a very influential and a great man in my life, my uncle, uh, was with the NYPD for many years. And um, when I was about 18, I started going to Queens College. You know, I was a commuter for working part-time jobs here and there and doing everything I could do. To, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. At, at first, I thought I was going to be a college – well, I was going to be a, a DJ because I had a radio show in the college radio station. With this ridiculous accent, I attempted to go into broadcasting. Oh, now, wait a minute. What was your what, – what did you use for your DJ name? Dan Murphy. Very imaginative. <laughs> Dude, that was it? That was it. Well, there's a college radio well, you station. You never worked undercover. What's your name? Uh, officer. Well, it used to be Officer Dan Murphy. No. <laughs> Not big on imagination because, you know, I really couldn't do any undercover work, much at least in New York City. I just looked too much like a cop. But I'll tell you later about where I had to do it. Uh, and that ended up being a very interesting experience for me. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I thought I'd go into uh, radio work, and I found out that radio work is ridiculously hard to get. And when you do get it, it pays next to nothing, and you can get fired any minute. And it just wasn't the kind of thing that appealed to me. I realized that. So by by the time I was about twenty, I remember seeing my uncle at a family gathering, and he said to me, "The police test is coming out. Why don't you take the police test?" And I said, I, "Really? I, I I hadn't even considered it." And uh, next thing I know, I took the police test. Uh, me and 52,000 of my closest friends took that test in 1982. <laughs> and Holy literally 52,000 people took the test. They probably hired 10 or 12,000 off the list. Uh, but I went in one of the first groups. I did very well on it. It just seemed intuitive to me. And, and I really, really fell into it. I really loved it. Um, it wasn't something I had considered that much. But then when I started thinking about it, I realized I didn't want to sit in an office and be an accountant all day long at 21 years of age. I didn't necessarily want to swing a hammer on a construction site like half of my neighborhood was doing, um, but I, I, 
I had no idea what it, what it was all about, except the more I learned about it, the more it sounded like it would be a lot of fun. And it was. Um, I really loved when I first became, it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So now, did you ever go out and do anything with your uncle, you know, during that time? I mean, you said he was on the, he was on the job, but did you ever get a chance to go watch him work or do anything with him related to work? When I was younger, when I was a kid, we would spend a lot of time at my, uh, they lived in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, my five cousins and my aunt and uncle. And he, every now and then he would, if we were out, he would stop by a precinct or something that he was working in and we would get the chance to see it. And it was interesting to me, but it didn't really click. You know, I was probably eight years old, nine, that kind of stuff. But I always respected him. And it's funny how my respect for him and my appreciation for him, he was a gentle gentleman, great guy. Everybody knew him and liked him. He knew mayors. He was that kind of guy. Um, but he had no ego or air about him whatsoever. But he was a tough human being. I mean, if you fought with him, you felt it for weeks. He was that kind of a guy, but but he was the happiest guy in the world. Just, you know, um, a great influence on me. You guys have a term in NYPD, and it's called having a hook. Uh, and we learned this mm -hmm. from Tommy and Mike when we had those guys on. Did your uncle, was was that your version of, because he was an uncle, was that your hook? Or did, you know, does that help you get on NYPD? He didn't help me get on, and he really didn't help me within. Um, but if I needed it, I could have asked him for it. He knew a lot of people. Uh, I didn't really feel like I needed it, or, or I didn't even know. Like, like for example, a lot of people go to the academy and say, oh, I want to work in Midtown. I had no idea where I wanted to work. I was like, wherever you put me, I'll figure it out, you know? Um, I, I never really had to go to him for anything. And, uh, no, a lot of people do have that. And generally, when you see a hook or um, somebody with a hook get placed into a, an exclusive or a somewhat elite unit, they generally tend to be disappointing. You know, I, I would rather be in a place because I sort of earned it. You know, I, I belong here. I made, I made the cases. I made the arrests. I'd rather be there because of that. Uh, because well, the, the other guys. Uh, you know, nobody cuts you any slack. They're going to bust your balls if they think it's, you know, that you got that not through merit, but just simply because you knew somebody. Oh, yeah. If you got it handed to you, that's why, you know, most of the folks, in fact, all the ones I'm thinking of, it never really helped to have a legacy or have, you know, somebody there before you because, um, you know, we were different. It, it was a different setup than like NYPD, like being on the state patrol or the police department. So, I mean, same thing. You I had no hook, had nobody just had to do it on your own. The reason I asked that is I noticed in your notes, we'll talk about it later, is you got on the major case uh, squad basically at a pretty young, you know, age into your tenure with NYPD. And that's like the thing is normally you have to have a hook to get a cherry, you know, assignment like that. And, you know, I think that's, we're going to talk about that in a minute is you did it through hard work. So let's talk real quick though, about the Academy. I learned some interesting things from Tommy and Mike, when we talked to them, um, your Academy is about six months long. Well, I mean, what was it like, um, going through, starting to learn this stuff and going through the instruction and, um, learning all of these things that your uncle at that time only knew. Yeah. You know, um, it was interesting. I, I had bothered to, I'm the kind of guy that did the research. So I bothered to study up on some of the stuff before I went in there. I actually changed schools. I was in Queens college. I started going to John Jay college of criminal justice to, to change my, my path just so I would be more ready. I felt if I'm going to do this, let me study it. But going in there was interesting. Um, it was interesting. We had some fantastic instructors. Very at the time, we had very experienced instructors. All of them had been in gunfights and survived when crazy did you start, times. By the way, what year? Eighty four. 
84. February okay. of 84, I went to the academy. So most of the, the, the instructors there had 15, 18, 20 years with the department, had been through uh, the blackout, had been through the Black Liberation Army assassinations of cops, had been through riots and all other manner of things that happened in New York City. They had been through budget cuts where layoffs occurred. Cops were laid off in New York City in the 70s, and it was devastating. And they were really experienced, very much old school. And the department was trying to get us to not be old school anymore. They want they wanted us to be a newer version of a cop. Uh, these are guys that had axe handles in their lockers and stuff. And you know they didn't use a nightstick; they used an axe handle. It was a little a little different time. But <laughs> now, was that when you started? Were you wearing the powder blue shirts? Yes. The magnets for oh the kindler gent the kindler gentler officer powder blue shirts yeah. you know they they, they they showed every piece of dirt it was just yeah yeah and donut crumbs yeah and, you know no, sugar the you know. Show, the, show the donut crumbs I got to tell you about donuts <laughs> all right I would rather literally be seen running down the street naked with my hair on fire than in uniform with a donut in my hand because yeah, the on, whole man. connotation behind it is like you know. And, and imagine nowadays, is three thousand people trying to take your picture of you eating a donut, and you, I would, you know, so, yeah, no thanks. True, I'll nowadays it's different, but that's a, yeah. that's our stereotype. We got to live up to it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, but okay, but be honest. What was your favorite donut? Come yeah. on, <laughs> come on, uh, come French, on. French crawler, probably. Yeah, <laughs> not that I ever had one. I hear they're good. Yeah, you you would be like sitting in your squad car with a brown paper bag, looking around, then reaching down, taking a bite, looking around, making sure nobody saw you. Like yeah. like the drunks that used to hide their bottles in the brown paper bags, like nobody knew, right? Exactly. So, All right. what was the best part about the academy? What, what's the what did you like most about the academy? I I, I really liked the physical ed stuff. Um, learning takedowns and judo and, and really practicing and diving into boxing and defensive tactics. To me, I really enjoyed the physical piece of it too. I was in great shape and running and doing all two and a half hours worth of gym every day was great. Um, I liked the law, the social science we used to call silly science. It was all like how to be nice to people and everything. And in a lot of neighborhoods, it, it didn't apply 19 out of 20 encounters you had. But the law applied at all times. You had to know the law. You had to know what you could and couldn't do. You had to know what to charge people with. And and I really paid attention to the law. So I, I took that in a lot. The driver training was a blast. Watching people who had never had a car wait, before. Wait a minute. Driver training in downtown New York City. What is it? You're going, no. oh, we're in a pursuit. How fast are you going? Eight miles an hour. We're stuck behind a taxi. <laughs> or it is a taxi. Yeah. Well, let's get a couple of things straight. There is, there's no such thing as a pursuit in New York City anymore. They, they, they don't allow you to pursue anybody unless they basically kidnapped Mother Teresa. Other than that, you're not pursuing people. It, it gets called off right away because it's so risky. There's kids all over the place. There's people. You, you, you got to be careful with that stuff. But we had a driver training unit that was out in Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn, which was an old abandoned airstrip. And we went out there and we got a chance to go crazy with the cars and, and you know, who's flipping a car over in the weeds and who's never driven before. And it was funny, but it was great. And the firearms was good too. Um, that training was fun because it was the kind of stuff that actually all these years later stuck with me. The tactic stuff, um, the good Quick question about the driving, though, uh, and, and not, not I mean, it's legit serious question because I, I know where I live at North Virginia. I'm continuously amazed, like when I have to go into D.C. or something, the number of people down there who don't have it's not the fact that they don't have cars is they don't have cars because they've never learned how to drive. They're 25 years old. 
you know, and they've, they never drove because they were in an area that didn't have to. Did you have that issue in New York to where, I mean, like you say, it's tough to drive in a lot of those places. When you got in there, there, I mean, were there people in your academy that that's the first time they're like really behind a car? Yeah, they got their license to come on the job. There was a bunch of them. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. And <laughs> wow. so when you're down and some of the driver training stuff is tough, you know, you have to really be pretty skillful with behind the wheel before they'll give you a you know, 20 at the time, whatever it was, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar car to go destroy on the streets of New York. Um, and <laughs> some of them were pretty funny. It's like, uh, you better go practice with your friend's car on the weekend and come back next week because you're not going to make well, it. Well, I saw some of the NYPD cars and the number of dents they had on those. I think some of the cars. <laughs> oh, they look rough. They look rough. You, you know I'm what? always even amazed. When I joined, Good. I, I was going to say, I'm sorry, Dan. Uh, even when I joined DEA in 1987, we had one guy that was had never been a police officer came in from New York City. His name's Milt. I don't I don't think he made it too far along in the job once he got out of the academy, but he was talking about how, you know, guys were giving him a hard time about how long you had your driver's license and he'd had them less than a year. He got it to apply to DEA. And I thought, you know, first of all, I thought, well, they're just, you know, joking with this guy. But as you, you know, you get to know everybody and you all become friends. It's like, holy cow, you really never learned how to drive? <laughs> and it was true, even in 1987. Wow. That's crazy. That is crazy. It was. Yeah. It was. But back to you, though, Dan. Yeah. The other Murph. All right. <laughs> Murph squared you got on this call. He's just named Murph it. squared. This is going to be a great podcast. It's just because of that right there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll call it Murph and Murphy because that's an easy way. So, Murphy, back to you now. So, you were talking about that. We are talking about driving and stuff, and you're getting ready to say something for the other Murph so rudely interrupted you. I did. You know what? I, I absolutely forgot what it was. Uh, <laughs> it, couldn't have, could, it couldn't have been that wonderful. <laughs> uh, we'll circle back. It was probably a naked guy on meth climbing in through your patrol car window. That seems to be the uh, first call of choice for some of our guests. Anyway. Oh, um, God. Yeah. But we're talking about going through the academy and some of your favorite classes. And I was asking about, you know, the, the driving for the first time. Um, when... So how many, I know that you said they hired like 10 or 12,000 out of the 52, That's but that's spread out like over a mm -hmm. year, right? Over several years, yeah. The NYPD academies generally at the time were somewhere around 1,500 to almost 2,000 recruits at a time every six months. Um, so we're churning out a lot of cops, but a lot were retiring too. Uh, when you have to maintain a thirty-five to 40,000 person department, you've got to keep churning them out. Um, yeah. they're, they're having trouble now. Were they running? I mean, but but it's not just one big class of two thousand, or was it separate classes of like three hundred each or two hundred each, or did they just bring do everybody at once? It's it's two separate shifts. The you know you, you rotate weeks and uh, of days and four to twelves, and everybody's at the time was in the same building, the police academy on Twentieth Street. So it was one class, one group going through for six months. Wow. Yeah. Cr so crazy. Were busy. you going? You you're going back and forth each night then, or were you staying close, or what were you doing? I lived at the time in, in Western Queens, so it was maybe 20 minutes train, a little bit of walk. Not a big deal. It was subway. Um, I grew up on the subway, so I was very familiar with them. My father worked on the subway system for 25 years, so to me, it was it was very easy to get there. So you done you get graduated. You're smart now. You are a police <laughs> officer, you know, who doesn't eat yeah. donuts. Yeah, well, well, yeah, we'll find out about that. Well, we're uh, we're yeah. gonna find out. Yeah, we're gonna talk about your donuts here in a minute. But uh, so you you graduate, 
and like you say, you didn't really care where they were going to send you. You just wanted to do the work. But did you get a choice or did you get to uh, put in for like, hey, here's where I want to go? Or were you just one day they come in and say, you know, uh, uh, Officer Dan Murphy, you're going X? You know, to my memory, I think that they asked us like a dream sheet. Uh, like if you lived in Staten Island, everybody would want to stay there rather than pay to go over the bridge and stuff. I think I may have got a dream sheet. Um, I don't remember, but I do remember when it came down, they tell you this is where you're going. At the time, they called it neighborhood stabilization units, uh, which is all the rookies went. And you worked out of one precinct and you were assigned to three or four. So you worked in that general area unless they pulled you for – and when you're a rookie, they pull you for every nonsensical – ridiculous assignment there is. Is a dead body, you're going to sit on it. There's a parade, you're going to it. There's a building fire and somebody has to stay at the front door, uh, you're going to do that. You're going to get everything. Um, so you just you just do it and you end up learning a little bit about the area you're in. But I, I had no choice in the matter. I ended up being assigned out of the 90th precinct in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We covered Greenpoint, Bushwick, and Williamsburg. And Greenpoint was was the, the nicest of the three more residential area. And Bushwick and Williamsburg were, were far more, um, except for sections of Williamsburg. They're just drug-infested areas. Uh, Bushwick used to be a mafia area. Um, the famous picture of Carmine Galante with the cigar in his mouth was taken on Knickerbocker Avenue in a little cafe. Um so if you've seen that one. That's one where he was ventilated with several holes. Yeah, and he's sitting outside in the courtyard, and he's, his head is up, and the, the cigar is still in his mouth, which local precinct um, you know, legend has it that it was placed in there by the first responding detective just for, you know. <laughs> Shits and giggles. Shits and giggles, yeah. We'll call it what it is. Yeah. Well, one of the first viral photographs, yeah, because that, that was a very famous photograph. So it's like, all right, but it was a bad area. But um, so – you did these neighbor neighborhood stabilization units, but when you got out of the academy, the other thing, just out of curiosity, do you remember what your original equipment was? What what did they assign you for a weapon, and uh, like what what did you carry around your belt? Couldn't even compare it to today. I wouldn't even know what to do with half the stuff cops are carrying today. They gave us <laughs> six shot Smith and Wesson thirty eight caliber revolver, which you know I, I was comfortable shooting. Uh, I never had a handgun before, so I'm comfortable shooting. I had to learn how to shoot it. But frankly, it was really good to hit people with. It was more of a paperweight than it was a gun. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second thing, and they, we had these stupid little plastic ammo pouches that would hold six rounds in each. And if you opened it up, the hard plastic would make it just roll down and all the rounds would roll out in the street. So if, 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 you, if you ever had to reload your gun, you were kind of, you know, up crap's creek, so to speak. And we had... Um, they gave us mace, which they, they literally trained us on mace and said, don't use it. You're just going to take off everybody. <laughs> really? This, this is You're going to spray it in the wrong direction. It's going to hit the wind. It's going to hit everybody else everybody. except the intended target. Right. Yeah. Yep. The entire 4 to 12 will be pissed off at you for months. Don't use it. So we didn't use it. They gave us these nightsticks that were ridiculously light. Um, and they broke. Yeah, those were those poly them. sticks or whatever they were. There was like throwing a marshmallow at somebody. It, yeah, it was ridiculous. You couldn't, you couldn't possibly do anything except poke somebody with it. It would break. Um, flashlight, which they didn't like you carrying mag lights because that that was your real weapon. That substituted as the baton. Right. Uh, your cuff case, and um, they didn't want us carrying blackjacks or slappers as we called them, although a lot of us did. Uh, and a 10-layer Kevlar vest, because the theory at the time being your vest should stop your own weapon. Anything bigger than that, of course, is going to go through it. How heavy was that? 10 layers is nothing. 
It's it's yeah, it wasn't. It's yeah, very it's, light. It was it was basically. Um, if you if one of your fellow officers shot you by mistake and hit you in the vest, you'd be okay. But if anybody with a real weapon fired at you, the chances are good it it may or may not stop it. So that's what they gave us. That that was. A, Do you remember what kind of ammo they issued you back then? Was oh, originally it was just like Remington thirty eight special. We didn't even have the plus P for a few years to get that little extra punch to it. Um, we were, were based, I mean, we're outgunned ridiculously. I, we, we were, you stop a car, you make an arrest. We, we were hitting apartments and hitting AK-47s. I'm standing there with a five-shot chief in my hand in plain clothes. Ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but you're NYPD. They're going to listen to you, right? Absolutely. Yep. Total compliance. <laughs> Total. Absolute compliance. That's right. So, uh, And the utmost of respect. There so I know you got a lot of the shit details, but what was as you, when you first went out and you hit the mean streets, um, once you started doing your own thing, what was like, a what were, what were some of the calls that validated your, your reasoning for saying, yeah, I wanted to be a cop. This is what I wanted to do. What were a couple of the uh, initial things that you got sent on beyond, you know, guarding a dead body or, you know, standing guard at a, you know, fire scene? You know, it was a lot of um, craziness back in those days. You get the shots fired runs and you, your adrenaline goes pumping or you're in a foot pursuit over somebody who just robbed somebody. And, you know, I'm 21 years old. All of a sudden I'm in this, this, this life and this game that to me was, it was really exciting. Uh, your heart's pumping, all that stuff. Um, and then there's the other stuff. There's, there's the, the simple stuff that you don't think of all that much. Like I had a chance to deliver a baby when I was a rookie. Um, I was two weeks, maybe three weeks on the street, summer night in Bushwick, a foot post by myself, and the radio is popping like crazy, so there's no ambulances available, and the 16-year-old girl is going to have her baby in an apartment. The whole family screaming, officer, come here. So I go upstairs, and I'm like, well, they showed us a video on this. <laughs> most of the world say, breathe, breathe. most of the world enters this way. Give me some newspaper, go boil water, uh, and pray the ambulance gets here at some point. And uh, so I did. I just kind of played catcher. And uh, wow. oddly enough, that baby was going to be born whether I was there or not. Um, yep. But it was it was a real it was an interesting experience to me. It was really interesting, you know, and I had a chance to talk to a lot of people on the street. One of the things I, that I liked about it was I had taken uh, four years in high school of Spanish and then three years in college because I kept getting A's in it. Half my neighborhood was Latin that I grew up in. And to me, it was useful. Uh, most of the stuff I learned in school to me wasn't useful, but that was useful. So I get out in the street and it's a Latin neighborhood. And I realized soon that if I was going to communicate with anybody, I better at least try to speak this Spanish that I learned in school. And I found them very receptive and I ended up using it quite a bit in my career. And it came in really handy to look like the map of Ireland, but be able to understand what they're saying. Um, not a lot of times knock on the door and they look at you and they'll turn around and tell somebody in Spanish to hide the guns. And um, and they look at you and smile, and they don't realize they just they might as well have told me in English. And I look at them and I go, all right, I tell my partner, give me a second, I'll be right back. You know, how did you know that? Then I tell them I'm Puerto Rican, and I go, you look Puerto Rican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look like a poster for Guinness. You know what I mean? Daniel O. Murphy Gonzalez. Yeah. That's my name. You know, <laughs> have you ever heard of Carlos O'Kelly's? That's my uncle. Yeah. Uh... I had a, when I was a trooper, one of the deputies I worked with, Rudy Perez, looked like he came right out of, you know, Northern Mexico, you know, had that look and everything, could not speak a lick of Spanish. 
Uh, and I spoke more Spanish than he did. And there were a couple of times we had car stops that'd be out there. He'd be backing me up on something. And I'd turn and say, hey, would you go check something for me? He'd go back there and I'd stand. And that's what I would do. I would listen to the guys talk. You know, my Spanish wasn't great then, but it was enough. I could hear them say, hope he doesn't like find the mota or, you know, it's like, a, you know, have, are you, if, if he are, are you still wanted, you still have that warrant. You know, it was like, yeah. hey, the Lord is good. You know, keep yeah. talking. <laughs> I also really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed watching the senior officers, the, the veterans, our training officers and the other guys and girls work and learning how to do what I had to do to survive and get the job done and stay out of trouble. Those three important things. And um, I, I tell you, there was two, two training officers that left a big impression. One was uh, Norman Horowitz, who was absolutely crazy, um, but he was loved and feared in that neighborhood, and he could stop anything in a second with, like, by showing up. Uh, but he was funny. He had a great sense of humor, and he liked to make the evening fun. And then there was the other guy I, I may have mentioned in my notes. Donald Convey was, was a great influence on me. Donald Convey... They called him Spike. He was probably 5'10", 240, 250, like a 34-inch waist, it, it, massive arms, like a big Marine Corps tattoo, no-nonsense old-school guy. A great guy. But if you got under his skin or if you gave him a hard time on the street, I almost felt bad for people, the way that he would react to them. Just the force of his personality, getting out of the car, jumping in your face with these massive arms, screaming at people. I watch people literally crap themselves. <laughs> he, and he taught me right from – I worked a lot of tours with him and always good experiences. And, and we got along and he, he taught me right from Jump Street, don't take crap from anybody out here. The second somebody starts mouthing off to you or looking like they want to be a threat, ended immediately verbally jump in their face and let them know you're in charge and if they put their hands up kick their ass immediately don't let it you know he was he was so big i never saw anybody put their hands up to him let's put it that way is he the same guy in your notes that you were talking about that uh you guys approached a couple of motorcycle gangs that had no motorcycles oh that was that was horowitz yeah they had a (laughs) williamsburg brooklyn had this this biker gang called the unknown bikers that didn't have motorcycles they dressed the like motorcycles. motorcycles. <laughs> they wore like what engineer boots, jeans, the so, black leather jackets, you know, and look, they just I'm hung out in the corner. A, I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm going to say, look, if you don't have a motorcycle, how can you be a motorcycle gang? Right. I, I'm just just curious. Right. Uh, Anything's possible to those with, with a fertile imagination. Now these these knuckleheads would hang out on the corner on Graham Avenue, and just generally harass people, and they probably sold small amounts of weed or whatever to get their fun money, but they were just generally knuckleheads. So whenever Horowitz had a few minutes, he would like to mess with them. And he would, you know, one time, one of my first nights, he gets out, he, he buys Oreos. And I'm like, what are you doing? What, you know, he gives me a sleeve. We're going to go mess with the unknown bikers. He just walks right up to them and right in their face is pelting them, like holding the guy and hitting him in the face with Oreos just to emasculate him. Just because you know, <laughs> he, know, he knows he's not going to raise his hands to him. And now he has to stand in that corner all night and get made fun of by all his friends for not standing up to the cop. Uh, so, so <laughs> Norman did little things like that to people just to remind them they weren't in charge. But why would you waste perfectly good Oreo cookies on the unknown bikers? I don't know. It, 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 he felt it was a trade-off. It was a fair trade. But uh, <laughs> he, Horowitz was also a product of the of the craziness of the late 60s and 70s in the department in, in that era when they were targeting and assassinating cops. So he never stopped at lights. He, he moved like a shark continuously. He would go around traffic, 
almost cause accidents, go through big intersections. I, I almost had a heart attack the first night. He just never stopped at lights. He told you me. You know who else that sounds like? Sounds like the guys when they were over in Fallujah and Baghdad and places like that, the army guys. Mm-hmm. You never stop. You keep, you're in a Humvee or an you know, MRAP or whatever it is. You keep moving. You never, you stop. That's when it happens. You get a sticky bomb stuck in your car. Oh, yeah. He said, and he also said, never leave your car doors locked because you might have to get in like a crowd's chasing you and, and get out of there in a hurry. Never leave anything of value in the car when you get out. Uh, be ready to, he was, I mean, I just come from the academy where six months of do it the right way. And then within like 48 hours, I was doing it Norman's way. You know, he was. Uh, yeah, but there is the academy way. They have to teach you the right way to do stuff. But then what you get is the practical application when you're out on the street. Right. How to get the job done, how to survive, how to back each other up, how to stay out of trouble. Stay out of trouble, stay out of the hospital and the morgue. So you were mentioning like the 60s and the Black Liberation Army and the assassinations that were going on. When you got on the job in 84, how dangerous was it then for the NYPD cops? You know, what was what had changed from the BLA? Was it different gangs? Was it the um, um, the, the gangster stuff that was coming up? What made it dangerous for you guys out on the streets during that time, during the 80s? I would say 84 heroin and general crime in, uh, was just happening. 1985, I'm working in West Harlem and crack hits. Now, crack came overnight. All of a sudden, we started seeing people holding bags of stuff with these little vials. We, I had no idea what it was. All I knew was I grabbed a guy one time coming out of a building, and he had a big bag of them, and he couldn't wait to get away from me. And I, I just held on to him. I brought it into the station house with him, and I said, it's got to be some kind of a drug, right? And somebody says, yeah, it's Coke. It's like a new version of Coke. And all of a sudden, the danger went like that, skyrocketed. The number of shootings went crazy. Uh, the turf wars, territory wars, the drug robberies, everything got more intense right away because of crack. And as crack addicts <laughs> across the country, those that are alive will tell you, the unbelievable desire to have that next hit will make you do virtually any sort of robbery, burglary, crime, doesn't matter how violent, they've got to get that 10 or 20 bucks. So um, the whole scene changed uh, for the worse in 1985, in my opinion. It was a different thing. It wasn't a political thing. It wasn't targeted assassinations necessarily of cops. It was just general rampant. And I was working in in, in Washington Heights and, and West Harlem, which Washington Heights was the thoroughfare uh, it's where the Dominicans, um, not to disparage any group of people, it's just factual, factually correct. The Cali cartel moved their stuff into Queens. The Dominicans moved it up through Washington Heights. It was a corridor for New England and the Middle Atlantic states. So you would hit an apartment up there on a, on a simple call, and you might be running into a place where there's two triple beam scales, five keys, guys jumping out the window, guns everywhere. It's just, it was everywhere. And as a result of all that money and all those drugs came all the, the turf wars and the drug robberies, the ripoffs. So they, there was guns everywhere, violence, the number of shootings and homicides went through the roof quickly. That was our biggest thing. Um, and if you just happened to be in their way, they would shoot at you, no problem. Dominicans had no problem shooting at cops. Yeah. I was, the other thing I was going to ask you, too, is, look, you, you go through this job, nobody gets through it unscathed. Either something happens to you or you lose some friends. So what about you? Uh, 1988, a um, friend of mine was killed in the line of duty, uh, Michael Busick, phenomenal guy, tremendously brave, bold, young cop. 
there was a drug robbery that was going down in Washington Heights, and um, he happened to be in the, in the middle, wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, he took a round through his heart. And the guy that did it got away temporarily back to the Dominican Republic and ultimately paid the price for it. But that was uh, – there was other – there was – I knew him. What do you so mean he was, ultimately paid the price? Expand well, he was, he was picked up by the Dominican authorities. Now, American judicial system is a little different than the rest of the world, as you can imagine. And Dominican Republic didn't quite, uh, for whatever reason, see the point to send him back to America. So they were holding him for us, and they ended up throwing him off a balcony of a hotel. Um, or they said he jumped on five, six stories, handcuffed on his face. Uh, so he died that way. Um, it was It was a crazy time. That was that was 1988. That was the same night that a young undercover officer in Manhattan North, about 20-something or 30 blocks away, was killed in an undercover operation named Chris Hoban. So in one night, we had two guys killed um, with, within five-minute drive of each other. That was crazy. And then shortly – actually, I think it was before that – we had a young officer in Queens killed by a drug gang, Eddie Byrne, uh, sitting by himself in a marked car guarding a witness's home to the drug gang in South Jamaica. You know, that's the one I heard about. Um, and I think wasn't his parents or his dad or somebody was pretty vocal about that. I mean, there was, yeah, his dad was a lieutenant was, in our job and he yeah, worked in the legal okay. bureau and, uh, and Eddie was 22 years old and he came in for the midnight and they put him in the car by himself on a cold night. He turned the heat on and he did what anybody would do. If, if you're working rotating shifts, which is at some point you're not off. Uh, your body goes to, just nods off, and this crew intended to kill him as a message, and they did. They shot him up bad. But the one thing I was always proud of was our response to that. Uh, whenever anybody killed one of ours, we essentially went a little crazy, to say the least, um, turning the neighborhood upside down, shaking every tree, and letting them know that this is unacceptable behavior. Um, we flooded that area with cops. I was in, I was in plain clothes. It was four of us in a car. And it was just anybody that had a warrant went, anybody that was on a corner got thrown off the corner. We weren't allowing it to happen again. And the message was sent loud and clear. Narcotics hit every door that could be hit. Uh, undercovers bought from everybody that would sell. And we just we just hammered that neighborhood until the arrests were made. And that's what we do in New York. You mess with one of us. If you kill one of us in an intentional way and you're part of an organization, your organization's gonna hurt. Uh, organized crime. We had a, a detective that was killed by a couple of mafia guys, and this basically we went nuts. Um, um, Ev Hatcher, you know that name, Murph. I worked on that case. I actually went to uh, Cayman Islands, did some undercover down there on some of those really? some mafia figures. Yep, that was a horrible case where a, a DEA agent goes to Staten Island to meet a mafia guy or a mafia associate. Just to talk. He said no money, just to talk. And um, he ended up getting killed by him. The guy got spooked. Well, to say that we turned the heat up on Italian organized crime in New York was a dramatic understatement. It was almost like if you had a vowel at the end of your name, the cops were crashing through your door and throwing you on the wall. And, and nothing hurts them more than interrupting their business. So they ended up killing him for us and dumping him in the street, Gus Farace, who was a real knucklehead. But yeah. Oh yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear that you you worked that that piece of it down there. He's yeah, that was a tragedy. Yeah, I was relatively new. I think it was in '88, um, if I remember right. And they sent. It was funny because the they sent a bunch of DEA and FBI just down there. FBI got involved because um, 
I guess because of the task force or the federal designation of uh, Everett Hatcher. And they said, you know, we're sending all of you down to the Cayman Islands for a couple of weeks. And, you know, that's my first international trip. No, my second one with DEA. Wow. And they took me and another DEA agent, two FBI agents, and they put us in a beach house in this gated community in Grand Cayman. And uh, they told us, they said, hey, you know, you're, you're tourists. But the reason you're here is to watch these houses that belong to identified organized crime figures out of New York City, some of the mafia families. And so we'd, you know, my, my DEA buddy was Jeff Booty. We'd get up and we'd walk out the back door onto the beach and go out and we'd snorkel for a couple hours every morning and catch lobster, you know, and, and get stuck on the fire coral and burn the shit out of our skin and stuff. <laughs> I'm a hillbilly, you know. But, uh, but the, the downside of that was in the uh, late afternoon and evenings, you had to do surveillance. So, you know, you're watching these guys go to these nice restaurants and we're taking turns running up to the Burger King, getting a burger so we can eat in our cars, just like you always do. Nothing changes yeah. just because you're yep. in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> well, did you did you have any success with the uh, surveillance or did that contribute to the case or identify anybody? Not really. It, uh, we were doing there were some guys in a hotel. And we were working with the Grand Cayman cops, and wiretaps were relatively new to them, but uh, they did have some experience because it was a British territory. And uh, so we brought some tech equipment down, and, and we were running, this is how primitive it was, we were running microphones underneath adjoining hotel room doors to listen to the conversations in there. But, I mean, think about it. If, if you're in a, a cheap-ass hotel in the Cayman Islands where you've got adjoining doors like that, these probably aren't the right guys. All they might have been the shooters. You know, you just never know. But what you, you, what you get told. on the tape? Stop. No. Stop. No. <laughs> Call me daddy. Call me your daddy. Who's daddy? Uh, I, don't, no, I didn't want to hear that, Murph. Like I'm sorry. It wasn't anything like that. <laughs> no, the, the reason I was saying that, Dan, you, you missed our um, – when we did our last episode, um, we had a guy on Sarge Patrick O'Donnell from Cops and Riders. And I always read these funny stories for small town police blotter. And uh, it was one of these. He goes, oh, he knows where this is going because the guy's going. He could hear the neighbor call because the lady was going, stop. No, stop. No. I said he thought I said, no, that's not what it was. She was screaming at him to stop farting because he was farting under the covers <laughs> and covering her up with it. <laughs> stop. No. That's nasty. <laughs> The old Dutch oven, as they say. Anyway, back, we digress in oh our drinking game. That's our drinking game. Back to our regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast. Now we're now that we're done talking about farting and doing Dutch ovens. Uh, Murphy, Dan yes. Murphy, back mm -hmm. to you. So sure. Um, yeah, you know that's one of the things. I'll tell you the one thing though. I've uh, always been impressed with. You never want it to happen. You never want to have a cop's funeral. But I will tell you this: when NYPD puts on something, they they put on something. Um, you know, I've, I've watched them, never been to one, but I mean, I've watched them or, you know, see what they've done for officers and the, the pageantry and the, just the honor and the dedication and the loyalty, mm -hmm. you know, to, to the guys who have fallen. It just always amazes me. You guys do such a great job during such an unfortunate event. That's one thing the department does well. Um, they really do, you know, they have enough history and enough people have passed that they, they got it down pat, sadly. Um, but it's, you know, you get a big department in a big city with a lot of crime. It does happen. I mean, I think, I think nine or 10 were killed my first year. And, uh, one of those, I was on the scene a few minutes afterwards, uh, in Bushwick was the first female officer ever killed in the line of duty in New York city, a transit officer named Irma Lozada. And it was a really, really bad scene. She was shot through the head with her own gun. 
and she was in plain clothes and uh, all the transit guys were all broken up and I just was a rookie. We got there in uniform, responded to a call for assistance. We get there and all these guys are mulling around. It was just nasty. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's, it's, it's part of the job. You know, it's tough to go through a career there and not so, know somebody who has either been killed or, um, or shot multiple times, you know, I know people that lost limbs, stuff like that. It's it was a crazy time. You know, you look back and and I mean, I watched the movie Serpico when I was young, and I think I looked at I did. Well, I don't think I looked it up. I did look it up just now. It was early seventies when the Serpico movie came out, and read I'd read the book, and you know, I wanted to be a cop since I was a little kid. But you know, watching Serpico, it just made you want to be a New York City cop. You know, but then as you learn more about it, and and you you know, you realize I grew up in Tennessee and Southern West Virginia. Uh, I'm probably not going to fit in too well up there. <laughs> I mean, you, you might you might have been surprised. You know, the four corners of the world make their way to New York City. Uh, I worked I worked with some people who were from all over the place. Um, it didn't matter. You make your way there. I mean, it was Irish immigrants, Dominican immigrants, Mexican, Puerto Rican, uh, people from down south. No matter what it was, you made your way to New York. You took the test. You got in the job, and to, and to a mm-hmm. certain extent, it doesn't matter where you're from. It, it's you know you're going to meet people from the four corners of the world anyway. So. A little bit of diversity in hiring. I've never, I've never seen. I've worked with law enforcement agencies around the world. I've never seen anybody like. I've never seen an agency like NYPD. It's just, I mean, it's just so massive. And you know, you guys take a forward approach to everything. The way I look at it, and the fact that you will detail officers to live and work in Israel, or we had one in Special Operations Division in D.C. I think there's one down in Miami. There's probably one in L.A. There's probably other parts of the world where there are full-time NYPD officers. I think it's great. London, Paris, Tel Aviv, Toronto. Yeah, we, we have people, the Armed Intelligence Division started that program years ago. The Commissioner Ray Kelly was um, was not a fan of, uh, as a lot of federal agencies were, the FBI's ability to not just manage the terrorist threat to New York City, but also to communicate it and work uh, hand in hand with the NYPD. They were not good at sharing information. I'm not telling anybody on this call anything you probably don't know already. Um, so he decided that he, rather than wait for it to come through channels and hear about it last minute or after an attack, he would proactively assign people to work with these intelligence services around the world. So that way we had an opportunity to immediately know what was going on. And it was, it became very effective. It's an effective program. That's just very forward thinking in my book. I'd take my hat off to him for that. Had the chance to meet him one time and his son, um, just, I mean, just cop, you know, good old cop, you know, definitely a New Yorker. Definitely a New York cop, so he was a good guy. Hey, um, let's start setting the stage for some stuff here now, uh, because I asked you earlier about having a hook and working into some cush assignments, and like the major case squad, that's a cush assignment. Um, you worked your way up, like you said, you were in warrants, you know, after four years. Um, let's start setting the stage because there's two cases we wanted to talk about. One of them you called it was flip. Um, that's this one takes you to Hong Kong, and then we're going to talk about the King of Clubs. Uh, it was a homicide kidnapping case where you ended up. I mean, they ended up making the arrest out in California. You were under a real time crunch. But let's talk about setting the stage for how you get into these assignments because the, the the one the flip was a a, a brand new high to assignment, the high intensity drug trafficking uh, area uh, DEA you know program. So let's talk about how did you how let's start by talking first about how did you manage to get out of uniform after four years and get onto the warrant squad? Cause you know, I, I got to imagine even with NYPD, there's like structure and there's the way things are supposed to happen and you're supposed to do your time. It seems like you were kind of ahead of your time. Well, I, I, I was very fortunate to go there without a doubt. Um, 
a sergeant who was in the warrant squad at the time and was part of the selection process for people to go into warrants, which was also an investigative track assignment working towards a gold shield. Um, I had worked with her in the 30th precinct, knew her well, and they were looking for people who wanted to go to warrants. And frankly, warrants wasn't as perceived as desirable as narcotics. Narcotics was sexier and cool and Everybody kind of wanted to work on narcotics or public morals and stuff like that or auto crime. Uh, warrants was just, you know, looking for knuckleheads at six o'clock in the morning, hiding under their bed and stuff like that. But a lot of it was was mundane work, but it was really good for me, basic investigative. I took the interview. I did well at the interview and I got picked up and I was I was kind of amazed, too. But I was happy. I was, you know, I had done a lot on patrol in my time. I had uh Followed the game plan that the department laid out. I had made some bribery arrests, which the department loved because it showed integrity. Um, I admit, I, now, were these people bribing you while you were on the job or working a case where they're trying to buy bribe other public officials? No, nah, this is low-level knucklehead stuff. You grab some moron uh, selling drugs or something and he you know, tries to give you money or um, stolen car. You know, can I can I go to the ATM and get you money to let me go? You know, stupid stuff. <laughs> these, these guys, yeah, are the, sure, why not? Yeah. One thing you mentioned, Dan, was working towards the gold shield. Can you explain to our listeners what you're talking about there? In the NYPD, to become a detective is not a civil service test or anything else. What it is is a matter of uh, making your way to a, an investigative track assignment, like a, a warrants or the narcotics division or public morals. Doing your time there, and after a period of time, uh, you, you are designated detective and given the promotion, given the gold shield, because you have learned so much and you become more valuable to the department as an investigator. So I, I went into warrants with that, and then I was transferred from warrants to the narcotics division. When they were picking up, after two years in a warrant squad, I put I put in for narcotics, and I got picked up. There was a big group that being picked up in 1989. And I went to uh, to narcotics, did the training there, and and that's kind of a quicker path than warrants to getting a gold shield. But you have to go through in a certain assignment to be designated detective. Yeah, so that's and that's what everybody wants to do is to become a detective. Well, not everybody, but most people want to become a detective, right? Because you want to get into the criminal investigative part of the of the career. Yep. Yeah. Most people who are workers and who enjoy the thrill of the chase and the whodunits and really want to learn how to um, do that kind of policing, you want to be a detective. And in New York City, it's um, we had plenty of detectives. We had a lot who worked in units where they didn't do much necessarily. It kind of, well, we'll make you detectives kind of an honorary thing because you do this well. But if you were a detective and a real detective, so to speak, back in that day, you were working a lot. You were making a lot of arrests. There was a lot of cases. And you learned a lot just by osmosis. If you tried not to learn, you couldn't because you were around so much stuff, you know? Did you make more money as a detective? It's a small promotion and increase in pay. Not a lot, but depending upon where you work, overtime comes with the job. You know, it goes together like ham and eggs. It's just arrests and overtime. Yeah, I went, I went to the narcotics division and at, and then the, the height, after two years there in Brooklyn North, which was really just, you know, an absolute zoo of arrests and guns and craziness and fights, then... Um, the Organized Crime Investigation Division, which was the housing sort of unit that was going to put the HIDA task force in it, uh, was picking up people for the HIDA task force. Now, at the time, this was President Bush 41, who designated six areas of the country as major heroin or, or drug importation sections or areas of the country, New York, 
Miami, Southwest border. There was six of them all together. And they each got money to start or augment their existing task forces uh, because of the amount of drugs coming in late 80s, 90s. So I was picked up. There were three teams, 30 detectives that were picked up, three sergeants, three lieutenants, and a captain. My, my team was Asian or Southeast Asian heroin. Now, at the time, I knew absolutely nothing about Southeast Asian heroin. I spoke Spanish. There were two other teams. One was a Colombian team specifically. The other was what we called non-traditional, which non-traditional could be anything, but primarily they focused on Dominican drug gangs in New York City. So um, I went to the Asian gang, uh, the Asian group, and I I learned like a sponge. There was so much to learn. First of all, there's more money in heroin than Coke. So there's a lot of money. And historically, they have been very slick and very quiet. And their languages, languages, being largely unknown to American law enforcement, allowed them that cover as well. Plus, they worked with and in a fairly insular, non-police-friendly community of Asians, uh, many of whom were hesitant to ever talk to a cop because of what they were used to in their home countries or they were illegal. Um, So they got away with and did a lot under the veil of respectability through civic organizations and stuff. There was a lot of money being made in heroin. So I learned a lot about that, where the routes for trafficking were, where the the, uh, importation was coming in from, uh, that that golden triangle that everybody talks about, the Laos, Burma, Thailand. Now, Myanmar, I can't keep up with names of countries. But um, it was fascinating to me. And and to see how entrenched it was in New York City was an eye-opener for me. Well, did that – you probably didn't have any say-so in it, but – you spoke fluent Spanish, and so they put you in the Asian group. Does, Makes perfect that just, sense. Sounds like something the government would, do, you know, the federal government yeah. would do. Oh yeah. Well, New York, New York City has a habit, of, and I can tell you more later about some of the stuff that they do that absolutely flies in the face of logic in a big way. But you know, I, I, I look back now, and I was glad they did because it forced me to branch out and grow, and and I learned a lot, and I had a chance to do some stuff that I never thought I would do, including what I'll talk about at some point coming up soon with this case that uh, that really took up a lot of my time and the time that I worked with the DEA. Before we get into that, let's talk real quickly, too, just about the dangerousness of the gangs, because I know you mentioned the Dominicans, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. What, what about Jamaicans during this time? And where did the Asian gangs, you know, the drug gangs rank in terms of being dangerous? Was it over? Was it more, um, you know, um, uh, nuanced, you know, their type of uh, threats or intimidation. I mean, ha- tell us a little bit culturally about the difference in terms of because sure. Dominicans were just pretty much in your face, shoot people, you yeah. know, do stuff. They're right there. A lot of money. Uh, Dominicans that I saw up in Washington Heights and stuff were very bold, very bold with the police. Had no problem, you know, a lot of guns. They had no problem shooting at you. Um, the Jamaican, cra- I worked on a Jamaican crack organization case, a RICO case. They were extraordinarily violent. Uh, I don't know how much they shot it out with the cops, like East New York, Brooklyn, but there was a lot of homicides. I worked on a RICO case uh, that Bobby Gomez ran, and it was uh, 25 homicides, I think, in Brooklyn and eight in Richmond, Virginia, that this one group called the Poison Clan did. And uh, the two brothers that ran that organization, uh, three other people, too, all got approved for the death penalty by Janet Reno. And uh, when I went to grab one of them, he tried to pull a machine gun on me. I mean, these guys were brutal. Uh, that, that was most of our arrests were internal discipline within the organization. You're stealing, you're skimming. I think you are. I didn't like the way you didn't show up for a meeting. Whatever, you're done. But the Asians, go ahead, please. That's just what. What was the connection between New York City and Richmond on that gang? They were going down. We saw this with the Bloods too. Uh, they didn't want to just have a, a foothold in New York City. 
if they could move up and down the East Coast and get cities along the way where they could establish a foothold, because in New York City, they consider themselves to be the baddest ass gang guys, the baddest ass drug gang. So if they went down to a city like Baltimore or Richmond, they were like, they used to call the guys down there soft. We can go in and just take that place over. We'll run it. We'll make them into our drug gang members and we'll run it and we'll make money there too. And that's what they were doing. They were spreading themselves out. So they went down to Richmond and, um, yeah, it was interesting. They they killed eight people down there, which was the biggest news for for a long time in Richmond that they had eight drug related homicides in like one year. Well, let me tell you, but Richmond was a obviously a violent area. That's where Patricia Cornwell um, got her character, Doctor K Scarpetta, from, who's actually a doctor uh, uh, Fieri, Doctor Fieri. It's based on a real medical examiner, and that's because there were just so many homicides and everything going on in Richmond. And like you say, when this you add this, gangs, I didn't realize. I can tell you with Richmond, um, if you're Jamaican, you're going to stand out. It would have been easy to identify you because they don't get a lot of Jamaicans in Richmond. Yeah, so that was uh, – yeah, but the Asians – just to get back to them for a second. The Asian street gangs in New York City um, had been there for a long time. The, the, the typical traditional gangs that had the small turf of, of Chinatown divided up, the white tight the, – I mean the, the ghost shadows – the Flying Dragons, the certain gangs that hung on the T.O., they were into a lot of things and maybe some drugs, but they weren't the big – the drug traffickers were more the snakeheads and the organizations that were bringing people in illegally that had that channel of, um, of distribution. Uh, renting these boats, these, these rickety boats, or, or getting people in through Canada – and muling them across the border from Canada in. They had a variety of ways that they got the drugs in. Uh, they, they like Very much like the Colombians to a certain extent, they built them into existing products. They shipped them over. They knew that our customs areas in Brooklyn at the port and other places and JFK were just way too packed to search everything. And they made a fortune. They really weren't big on um, violence on the street that got that made the news. They had a couple of instances, but not a lot. They stayed away from it. They knew it was bad for business. So they were quieter, more shadowy, um, but again, a lot of money. Now that we're starting to lay kind of the framework and the groundwork for a lot of these gangs, tell us now, let's let's start laying the groundwork for this case you called Flip. Mm-hmm. So first of all, why did you call it Flip, and how did this whole case start? Flip was because the main, the first and, and the real main cooperator in the case was Filipino. So they called him, he was a Flip. It's a nickname for a Filipino guy, and because he flipped <laughs> so quickly, but he, so he's a flip flipper. He's a flip a, flipper. A That's what you call him. Flip. Yeah. What? what I, <laughs> <laughs> a Filipino flipper. Yeah. So my team was gathering information. We were starting from scratch. We had no information on Asian heroin cases. We had a couple of Asians in the team who knew about the gangs and stuff, but really, we were babes in the woods. So we went out with our hats in our hands up to DEA Group Forty One, which was the um, the real DEA Southeast Asian heroin group. And, you know, they gave us some information, helped us with a few things, but a lot of it was just, you know, real old school detective work, running through arrest reports, going over areas, seeing where crimes were, talking to detectives and squads that covered Asian parts of the city. Who's an informer? Who can we talk to? Talking to the narcotics teams. And we ended up developing a couple of informants, uh, the first one of which was a guy who I'll call Benny. That's his name. I won't give his, his last name. He was an Italian guy from the Bronx whose brother Benny, was Benny a Hanna, dealer. Right? Benny Hanna, Benny that's Hanna. Steve. 
<laughs> oh my god! Sorry, <laughs> I just came to mind. No, this this guy was a was a knucklehead to say the least. He he was involved in and he was on lifetime parole from the state, but he gets picked up for uh, moving drugs and he gets sent upstate to Bear Hill Correctional Facility in upstate near the Canadian border, as do three other individuals, all from different walks of life. Uh, one of them, an Asian who was going to be deported back to Asia when he got out. Another was another Italian guy named Mikey D. Mikey D was an associate with one of the crime families in New York City, and he was straight out of central casting, a pure character, hysterical. I'll tell you a story about him that'll make you laugh. And the last guy was a guy named Chris. Now, Chris was my flip guy. Chris was a leader of a branch of the White Tigers gang in Queens. He's Filipino, but he was allowed to be a leader of his own little set because he was so crazy and he was a hit guy. He would do hits for them. This is like a 19, 20-year-old kid uh, who was adopted, uh, came down from Canada, had no family really, took up with a gang and just did anything they wanted. Pure sociopath, pure psychopath. Um, he took a hit on a baby, the mother and the father, because the mother's brother wanted the mother and the family out of this apartment that was in a building that the father owned because he wanted to use it as a mahjong parlor, a gambling spot, and make money. And the family refused to leave, so he sent my guy in to kill them all. Now, they killed the husband, shot her through the just above the heart, but she lived, and the baby wasn't there because they turned the heat off, or else the baby would have been dead. So the, the kind of guy he was, was he was pissed off. He still told me in the proffer sessions how pissed off he was. He didn't get the $7,000 for the baby hit. Wow. The, 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 the degenerates, right? So these, You know, and, and the toughest part about doing interviews like that is maintaining your calm and composure when you really think, and I'd like to reach across the table, just grab you by the throat and right. choke the ever-living shit out of you. Right. But I'm going to put a smile on my face and go, oh, God, man, I so sorry to hear that. You yeah. didn't get the seven grand. How does that make you feel, yeah. asshole? <laughs> So th these four guys are upstate in Bear Hill in the late 80s doing their time, and the four of them become intimate. That's, you know, they're, they're each other's little Bob Carroll, Ted Nallis situation going on in prison, uh, including Mikey D from the crime family who is central casting tough. I could have been this guy. I know this guy. I know John Gotti, all this stuff. When I locked him up, it was hysterical. But Jeez. these guys did time together. And when the one guy was going to be deported back to Asia, he told them all, you guys are my brothers. I'm going to make you rich. I'm going back to work in my drug operation up in the mountains of Thailand, and I'm going to mail each of you boxes with heroin every week. And he did. He was sending these beautiful little wooden, very light wood statues that were painted, and they were inside of it. If you hit it just the right way, there was a heat-sealed envelope with one ounce of 95% pure China white, number four, Thailand heroin, the best stuff you're ever going to see. And if you sold it from drug dealer to drug dealer at the time, it was $7,000 an ounce. He would send one ounce in each statue, 20 to 30 statues in a box, two to three at a, a week to each individual. So exponentially doing the math, you can take that $7,000 ounce and hit it a number of times, and it's going to make you a lot of money. So these guys were all making all kinds of money off this until we had a, uh, somebody hit up on, you know, once we found out about it, we worked with the postal inspectors, of course, and did some controlled deliveries and 
and made some arrests. Hey, you just you can't gloss over that. You can't say once we found out about it. How did you find out about it? Through technical means, human sources, through, uh, through, you know, through interdiction, through informants. We, we we got you know everybody gives everybody else up to, <laughs> to save their own butt, but. So we ended up uh, doing control deliveries on these boxes and, you know, the postal inspectors would pretend to be a carrier and sign for the package. So, oh, I was waiting for this. Great. Give him about two minutes to get inside, open it up, and then we hit the door. And so when we arrested these guys, uh, one by one, uh, they cooperated. Well, two of them cooperated. Uh, Benny and, and Mike, he didn't. Benny and Chris cooperated. And Chris was just a fountain of information on the stuff he had going on. Our main concern was twofold. One, it was going to be a RICO case because of all the crimes and all their history. Chris was recounting homicides he had done. He was recounting burglaries, robberies, shootings, all this stuff that was part of his criminal past. He has to give up when you cooperate with the government. And this is a federal case. Um, Benny, same thing. He came in to cooperate because he's a sitting duck. He's on lifetime parole. Uh, The guy that was over in Asia was our goal. Get back to the source of supply. So our goal was to work our way back to that. So while we were running this two-pronged investigation, we had the drug piece going on, and it turned out that the main money launderer for this organization was based in Hong Kong, and it was a woman. And she, in order to get her extradited, and even the guy in Shanghai, the at, at the time, the Hong Kong authorities didn't want to just hear, well, we have evidence. They wanted, you know, in-person meeting with the person, positive uh, confirmatory identification in person that this is the person and then we will let you extradite these people to America. So DEA office in Hong Kong said, come on over, we'll do an operation. So uh, myself and my my partner, Keith Atkins, DEA agent, great guy, the two of us went over and for me, it was like, I got 10 years with the police department and I'm on a plane going to Hong Kong to wear a NAGRA recording device. I think I told you about this, Steve, in Dallas. Oh, yeah. my God, the phone. <laughs> NAGRA recording devices are like the size of a laptop or, or a, a, a tablet. They're these big... Real to real that burn your nuts off when yes, you can't have anywhere in court. Exactly. So <laughs> our job over there was to meet with her, get her on hey, tape. Hey, real quickly, before you talk about that, you had been on 10 years. I mean, you grew up in that area. Was this your first trip uh, either on a plane or outside the country? That is the end of part one, Dan Murphy and more tales of the NYPD. Part two will come out tomorrow. In the meantime, go visit us at GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Over on our website, we've got merch. We've got pictures of Dan back in the day available on our website. Also, visit us at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be is Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of content there. Makes the perfect Christmas stocking stuffer. For people you like and for people you don't like, give it to them because then they'll like you and you won't have to worry about it. So everybody stay tuned. We hope you enjoyed part one, part two, Dan Murphy and more tales of the NYPD coming up. 